Section 6 of the Underground Railroad, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Underground Railroad, Part 2, by William Still. Section 6. John Pettifoot. Anglo-African and Anglo-Saxon were about equally mixed in the organization of Mr. Pettifoot. His education, with regard to books, was quite limited. He had, however, managed to steal the art of reading and writing to a certain extent. Notwithstanding the patriarchal institution of the South, he was, to all intents and purposes, a rebel at heart. Consequently, he resolved to take a trip on the Underground Railroad to Canada. So, greatly to the surprise of those whom he was serving, he was one morning inquired for in vain. No one could tell what had become of Jack no more than if he had vanished like a ghost. Doubtless Messrs. McHenry and McCullough were under the impression that newspapers and money possessed great power and could, under the circumstances, be used with entire effect. The following advertisement is evidence that Jack was much needed at the tobacco factory. One hundred dollar reward for the apprehension and delivery to us of a mulatto man named John Massenberg, or John Henry Pettifoot, who has been passing as free under the name of Sidney. He is about five feet six or eight inches high, spare-made, bright, with a bushy head of hair, curled under, and a small moustache. Absconded a few days ago from our tobacco factory. McHenry and McCullough. Jack was aware that a trap of this kind would most likely be set for him, and that the large quantity of Anglo-Saxon blood in his veins would not save him. He was aware, too, that he was the reputed son of a white gentleman, who was a professional dentist by the name of Dr. Peter Cards. The doctor, however, had been called away by death, so Jack could see no hope or virtue in having a white father, although a chivalric gentleman, while living, and a man of high standing amongst slaveholders. Jack was a member of the Baptist Church, too, and hoped he was a good Christian, but he could look for no favors from the church or sympathy on the score of his being a Christian. He knew very well, were it known, that he had the love of freedom in his heart, or the idea of the underground railroad in his head, he would be regarded as having committed the unpardonable sin. So Jack looked to none of these broken reeds in Richmond in the hour of his trial, but to him above, whom he had not seen, and to the underground railroad, he felt pretty well satisfied that if Providence would aid him, and he could get a conductor to put him on the right road to Canada, he would be all right. Accordingly, he acted up to his best light, and thus he succeeded admirably, as the sequel shows. John Henry Pettifoot John is a likely young man, quite bright in color and intellect also. He was the son of Peter Cards, a dentist by profession, and a white man by complexion. As a general thing, he had been used very well, had no fault to find except this year being hired to McHenry and McCullough, tobacconists, of Petersburg, Virginia, whom he found rather more oppressive than he agreed for, and supposing that he had, quote, no right to work for any body for nothing, he picked up his bed and walked. His mistress had told him that he was willed free at her death, but John was not willing to wait her motions to die. He had a wife in Richmond, but was not allowed to visit her. He left one sister and a stepfather in bondage. Mr. Pettifoot reached Philadelphia by the Richmond line of steamers, stowed away among the pots and cooking utensils. 
On reaching the city, he had at once surrendered himself into the hands of the committee, and was duly looked after by the regular acting members. Emmanuel T. White Emmanuel was about twenty-five years of age, with seven-eighths of white blood in his veins, medium size, and a very smart and likely-looking piece of property generally. He had the good fortune to escape from Edward H. Hubbard, a ship-timber merchant of Norfolk, Virginia. Under Hubbard's yoke he had served only five years, having been bought by him from a certain Aldridge Mandray, who was described as a very cruel man, and would rather fight than eat. I have licks that will carry me to my grave, and will be there till the flesh rots off my bones, said Emmanuel, adding that his master was a devil, though a member of the Reformed Methodist Church. But his mistress, he said, was a right nice little woman, and kept many licks off me. If you said you were sick, he would whip it out of you. From Mandray he once fled, and was gone two months, but was captured at Williamsburg, Virginia, and received a severe flogging, and carried home. Hubbard finally sold Emanuel to a Mr. Grigway of Norfolk. With Emanuel, Mr. G. was pretty well suited, but his wife was not. He had too much white blood in him for her. Grigway and his wife were members of the Episcopal Church. In this unhappy condition, Emmanuel found a conductor of the Underground Railroad. A secret passage was secured for him on one of the Richmond steamers, and thus he escaped from his servitude. The committee attended to his wants, and forwarded him on as usual. From Syracuse, where he was breathing quite freely under the protection of the Reverend J. W. Logwin, he wrote the following letter. Syracuse, July 29, 1857. My dear friend, Mr. Still, I got safe through to Syracuse and found the house of our friend, Mr. J. W. Logwin. Many thanks to you for your kindness to me. I wish to say to you, dear sir, that I expect my clothes will be sent to Dr. Landa, and I wish, if you please, get them and send them to the care of Mr. Logwin at Syracuse for me. He will be in possession of my whereabouts and will send them to me. Remember me to Mr. Landa and Miss Millen Jespan, and much to you and your family. Truly yours, Manuel T. White. End of section six. Recording by Lee Smalley.